Hi. Hello, our goslings. It is I, Elizabeth Deanna Morris Lakes, and I am joined by my beloved co-host, Will Hoffacker. How are you, Will? It is I, and I am well. Liz, <laughs> how are you? I'm good. I, as I was just telling you off mic, I mm. had a root canal this weekend. Congratulations. And it feels bad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's, yeah, designed that way. I don't um, think that that is an exception to the rule. I think you are having that experience. I, and am, I don't envy you. I am glad that I get to drink cold beverages again, which was just hell before. Yeah. Um, and hot beverages. All beverages are in a much better place now. That's uh, that's beautiful. You can um, have coffee. You can have iced coffee. Yes. <laughs> and actually, I'm supposed to be drinking coffee. Hey. Because they tell you, they, they claim, and my tooth pain maybe disagrees, mm-hmm. to take three ibuprofen and one Tylenol. Okay. And that that combination is like better than opioids at treating this specific kind of pain. It's quite a cocktail. And that you can enhance that further by having caffeine. Neat. <laughs> uh, I have uh, no such uh, particular pain, but I'm drinking coffee anyway. Ooh, yeah, because it's still kind of morning over there for you. We're three hours apart again. That's right. Uh, daylight savings uh, happened uh, for you and not for me in Arizona. Uh, it is Sunday at uh, a little after 10 a.m. here, uh, a little after 1 p.m. there. So uh, being that it's Sunday, it's it's practically first thing in the morning for me. Yeah, uh, I've been awake right for now. seven hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been awake for less than two. <laughs> um, do you have any old business? I have one thing, so... Business. Go for it. Um, our well, actually, I have two things. The fir- <laughs> the first is that our beloved, favorite, but shared between us, so many memories. We both agree that this is perfect. Uh, Degrassi is mm-hmm. <laughs> is now there's well, there's good news and bad news, which is that it's on HBO Max now. Yep. Which is bad because it's not free anymore. <laughs> It's good because it's now much higher quality videos and um, no ads. Right. And the reason that is is because they are doing a reboot mm-hmm. um, and making a new Degrassi show that's going to be like a, an hour long or, you know, that sort of slot uh, a long a, drama. A drama, yeah. Mm-hmm. A TV um, drama. People are a little bit nervous that they're going to make it a little too shiny. Hmm. One of the um, one of the things I loved about Degrassi, which I know we talked about this, but I think it's worth mentioning, is that like they use real children. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. So, oh, uh, you know, it's not Euphoria, right? Where we're getting boobs everywhere, and it's not uh, you know, it's not even like I've been watching The Vampire Diaries, and there's this character Jeremy who's supposed to be 15, and then now at this point he's 16, and at the time. He's he's our age in real life, this actor. Mm-hmm. And at the time that this was coming out, he was like 24, 25, uh-huh. 26. And yeah. it's like ridiculous. Like it'd be it's like almost believable that this guy would be maybe 17 or 18, but mm-hmm. like there's no 15-year-old boy that looks like this man. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. He has like kind of a boyish face, but he's like 
tall and like wide and like muscular and like my god um so we're really hoping that they stick with the younger younger actors because i feel like a real strength of the show is that there's a bunch of fucking weird kids that like don't grow to be super tall super skinny super conventionally beautiful people yeah the other news is about Hmm. our other favorite Definitely agree on this band, Taking Back Sunday. <laughs> sure. Uh-huh. Um, it's like the 20th anniversary of uh, Tell All Your Friends coming out. Uh-huh. Because it came out in 2002. Yep. And they just re-released a higher quality version of Great Romances of the 20th Century that is the version that was their demo originally. Okay. I had heard this before. My ex-boyfriend, Dustin, God bless him, used – so the original EP that they put out was the first five songs, so it ended on Great Romances. Mm-hmm. And he used – he had these demos. Like, I guess he, like, you know, lime-wired them or whatever. Hmm. And they were, like, really, really low-quality, like, audio quality just because of, like, where – how he got them. You know, it must have been, like, ripped from somebody's CD and put through the yeah. machinations of the internet. It's up to the uh, listener – whether it was low quality in other respects, other than oh, just audio fidelity. I mean, I mean, honestly, these the, the versions that I heard initially were unlistenable. I did not like listening to them, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I knew what the song was supposed to sound like. You know yeah. what I mean? Right, right, right. Um, they released a higher quality version of this demo, which includes a higher quality version of the introduction. Which the introduction was something that you could like, if I'm remembering correctly, you could like barely hear it. Like the music was way louder and it was there, but like you couldn't really hear it. So now it's really in the forefront. And it's a monologue from a movie. I forget. I don't know what movie it is because I haven't looked at it. But it's by um, the actor saying this monologue that they like ripped for this demo is Michael Rapaport. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so yeah, worth checking out. Uh, I'm really curious about this movie now. So you said that this is the intro to Great Romances. So the intro to Great Romances has a Mm -hmm. monologue that was just ripped from a movie, right? Which is clearly why it's not on the, like, it's on the demo. That's clearly why it was on the demo, but not on the LP, right? When it came out, when they were signed. I'm just going to see if I can get a quick answer with a quick Google of great romances of the 20th century intro monologue. Uh, not quick enough, apparently. <laughs> yeah, because nobody gives a shit except oh, me. Oh, <laughs> no, that can't be true. <laughs> I'm sure our good friend Sam Martone knows. I can also probably listen to it and Google key phrases or whatever and figure it out later, but. Yeah, we will figure that out later. I think it's a movie from the early 90s or mid 90s too. So, I mean, it has to be before 2002, but it was like, I think it was like about like a five or six year old movie. Mm, Yeah. We'll get to the bottom of that. If not in this episode, then later. Maybe refer to the show notes for the answer if you're as curious as I am. What um which by the way the the funny thing the reason it would be worth it for you to listen to this at least you know just at least the monologue is because Michael Rapaport's voice has never changed. Yeah. It sounds 100% the same. Mhm. But yeah, do you have any th- I know that you said there's a bunch of things you could talk about. Is there anything you just want to mention or Um I mean, we we don't 
I have no particular desire to talk about the Oscars after they happened, do you? Oh, right. <laughs> no. I mean, that's not generally something that we've done. Yeah. We've talked four times in anticipation of the Oscars, but after they happen, it's like they're completely forgotten about <laughs> the next day. And I've never taken the time to be like, this is what I got right and this is what I got wrong. You just follow along with the tweets uh, yeah. at, uh, at SmugBuds if you want to see that. Something uh, kind of nice happened, which is that uh, at the end, uh, when all the winners had been announced, Dana and I had uh, made the same number of correct predictions. We that were, is nice. We were tied uh, winners with uh, 14 uh, uh, correct answers each. Uh, not all of them the same. Um, obviously, some overlap, but also some some divergence. Um, she did pick uh, Coda, which won, of course, and I did. I was sticking with Power of the Dog. Uh, and uh, uh, Andrew, who has won in the past, yeah, uh, by doing uh, research into what the professionals say uh, will win, uh, which is basically the only winning strategy that I know of. <laughs> uh, Andrew did us the courtesy of um, his picks were based on uh, some kind of uh, algorithm which was actually just like measuring the tectonic like vibrations of the planet earth or something like that. What? But so, but someone was using that <laughs> to assign almost, I, I, I would equate it to like this squid picks the winner of the Super Bowl, <laughs> like that, that kind of a. Yeah. I love that, which I love when they do that. I think it's so fun. Yeah. So that was because, not... because no one knows. <laughs> It, tur it turns out that method was not as reliable Successful. as, you know, just looking up what the New York Times says or, or, the, <laughs> or the LA Times or whatever. I love Andrew. I love that Andrew would just show up and be like, hey, guys, I, I decided to let some vibrations pick. <laughs> it's fucking Andrew, man. Uh, yeah, I didn't dig too deep uh, in, into, into that, as you can tell by, from my description of it. <laughs> That's perfect old business. I love that old business. Thank you. And same to you. Thank you. So, Will, I gave you two things when I talked to you last that I wanted yeah. my next episode to be about. That's right. I have bad news for you. <laughs> it's the it's the timely one? It's neither. <laughs> oh, interesting. Oh, wow. I've been like kind of kicking this around for a while. I've sort of vaguely tweeted about it a few times. Um, can but I, I'm can not... I ask a question before you reveal? Yes. Is it? It's been a long time since we used our spreadsheet of ideas. Yes. Is it? Is it something that I could have ever seen in this? No. Okay. So it's something newer than that. And I'm not even actually going to tell you. Okay. I. This is. Eventually, I will know. Eventually, yes. I will by the end to... of the episode. Yeah, and I will have to upload the episode, and, and it will presumably have a title. I, The I, listener knows before I do. Yes, sort of. I will have a specific name for this, so we'll see. Mm. I have, this is, this is, we're going to go on a journey, Will. Mm -hmm. I'm going to set up a premise. Okay. And then I'm going to knock it down. Okay. 
And then I'm going to put a little cherry on top. Great. And I just need you to ride it right along with me. Okay. I'll this do is my best. this is not a conspiracy theory. This is like okay. a terrible. This is not a conspiracy theory um because it's not like like I don't think it's like fa- I feel like conspiracy theory are based in facts that can be proven or disproven. Okay. But this is the closest to a conspiracy theory that any of these episodes have been. Interesting. I want us to go through what an ideal situation would be for both having comprehensive sex education in this country and like the structures surrounding that sex education that would allow it to be successful Mm -hmm. so not just like what would be taught but also like making sure people had like um the tangible resources okay so I have a list. I, I Googled a couple things to make sure that I, I had some things in my head. But I Googled a couple of different articles from sort of large organizations like Planned Parenthood and the um like obstetricians organization or gynecology organization to see what they said. Mm-hmm. And they all of these things are there in general terms. So I don't think I mean, I know we our listeners know that I'm certainly not a sex education expert. <laughs> mm-hmm. But in general, I think that these things are generally agreed upon. Um, so I'm just going to go through the points. Feel mm-hmm. free to interject at any point, especially if you have questions that I'm not explaining myself. Well, okay. The first is that sex education is starts early and it's age appropriate. Okay. So a very easy way that I can describe this is that my child has always known the anatomical names for the different parts of his body and of my body. Um, He asked very early if I had a penis, and I told him that I did not. Mm -hmm. Um, I said that I have a vagina and a vulva, and I used those words very specifically. Um, I did not necessarily – you know, it's not like I was showing – Elliot diagrams, but I had, you know, those were words that he had in his brain. He knew what they were. There we go. Um, and that scales, right? So that scales to, you know, not like, like again, not using euphemisms, being very explicit when, when children, not explicit in the sense of like uh, gory, but like... <laughs> Very clear about Mm -hmm. uh, when they ask about different sex things, when they ask about risks, when they ask about pregnancy. Um, Elliot, for example, doesn't understand – he hasn't encountered sex yet as a term, but he does know that part of Papa and part of Mama came together to make Elliot in Elliot's case. Um, Side note, we also made it clear that that's not how all – parents get children but we said for you this is how we got you Mm -hmm. so that's the first thing you know it's early you start early so it's never it's never something it's never some big reveal which can make be make kids feel very nervous and shameful um it's just always part of the conversation as it comes up Mm -hmm. the second thing is that it discusses consent so it says that there needs to be a constant conversation. It's not just like a yes means yes. It's like a, you know, constant, like, getting constant affirmations from your partner. 
Um, and it also discusses being informed, right? So not just that somebody's consenting to something in the moment, but if the, that if you have information that might change the way that your partner is approaching um, this situation, that you divulge that information so that they can make the full decision with full agency. Mm-hmm. Um, and also makes it very clear that saying no is not shameful, bad, makes you a bad person, makes you like a tease or something like that, that it's always appropriate to say no and to stop even if you've said yes every other time before. Um, that said, it also explains the risk of different sexual activities without being moralistic. So, for example, when I was in health class in junior year, I want to say, you know, they had to teach abstinence only. And that sucked. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because um, they were like just fear mongering us. And I remember this day being so tired that I was like, I I know exactly what I need to say and I just can't. I just don't have the energy to do this today. I was like, I maybe had a cold or something. But they had this like outside person come in <laughs> and they were like, um, like, okay, so you're trying to prevent getting getting an STD, but you're sexually active. So what do you do? You use a condom. Okay, well, condoms break. And I was like, what? Or no, they were trying they were saying you're trying to pre- prevent getting pregnant. Mm-hmm. They were like, "Okay, well condoms break." Actually, I take this back. They were trying to prevent both of these things because then they're like weird logic overlapped in weird ways. Mm-hmm. They're like, "Okay, so you're on birth control. Well, birth control is only 99.7 effective." As if that's ineffective. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a strange use of the word only. Yeah. And then they were like, "Oh, and your partner's been tested and didn't have any STDs. Well, what if they cheated on you? Like, li- literally, this was the narrative. Like, mm-hmm. and I was like, the thing I wanted to say was like, yeah, but if you're in open and honest communication with your partner, if you're using a hormonal birth control and an and a condom, there's not that there's no risk there, but you've significantly mitigated that risk and you can have safer sex. And probably be okay because people have sex all the time. And also, there's different kinds of sex. I think that's the other thing, which we'll get to this in a little bit. But, like, not just having cishet, PIV, intercourse as the only kind of sex that there is. Mm-hmm. Um, because, again, we're trying not to be moralistic. So explaining all of these risk options so that people know what they're getting into and what they're more high, light, highly at risk about and also how to miti- mitigate that risk. Do you have any questions so far? Questions? No. I, I, I follow. Thoughts? Uh, yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, look, you or I would hardly be the first uh, to observe that uh, if if you take that approach to telling kids like, I, uh, con- like condoms condoms are bullshit. The, <laughs> like the only the only way to not get pregnant and not get an STD is to not have sex at all. 
the uh i mean i it's it's more likely that the outcome is going to be a, a couple of younger people are going to have sex and they've internalized that condoms are bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> so so why bother using them? And and or they're just like so afraid that they so when I was a freshman, there was a girl that was on my floor. I don't know if you know this person or not. Um it was not which is to say it's not somebody that you necessarily know that it would make sense for me to tell you off camera but she and I were walking and she was like really nervous about something and I was like hey are you doing okay she was like well I visited my boyfriend and I'm afraid I'm pregnant I was like oh like what happened you know like trying to walk her through it thinking she had had unprotected sex thinking the condom had broken thinking she had been on hormonal birth control, but maybe had missed a day and now her period was late or something like that. No, no, no. She had given this guy a hand job with both of their underwear on. You're not going to get pregnant from that. I mean, I guess technically, anytime there's semen involved, you might be able to get pregnant. But like the ch- the chances are like close to zero, right? And the fact that she, as a freshman who was sexually active to some extent, was afraid of this, just shows how this fear-mongering was not working. <laughs> I'm going to, so you're, you're absolutely, yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm going to say with coming from a place of my own ex- uh, experiences, which I won't talk about, that have created my own biases, I would say if you got through those years of your life without personally feeling those anxieties for cases that sound as ridiculous as that, I think that you are the exception and not the rule. Oh, certainly. Certainly. And I don't mean that as a um, uh, indictment on this woman. Mm -hmm. I mean that as like... This was some this was not somebody who was coming from like a particularly restricted background. This was right. just somebody that had never sought out the information themselves and then yeah. didn't have any information. I guess there's no point in me trying to make this point. It's <laughs> it's pointless, but I think what I'm trying to say is it failures of the sex education system aside, mm-hmm. I think even if even if you had the perfect sex education all your life, I I think it would be very difficult to circumnavigate the trap that that young woman fell into. Oh, okay. Of having that anxiety despite having no good reason. Okay. To have that anxiety. Sure. Yeah, I see what you're saying. But that said... If she had had some of the things I'm talking about here, I think she would have at least had somebody to talk to or a place to go that wasn't me, somebody that she was not close friends with. Um, okay, so that the next- to, That to me sort of implies we went to the same school. Yeah. There's no place that she could have gone to talk to like a professional. Oh, she probably could have gone to the health center or something like that. I'm just saying that my idea here when I'm thinking about this is sort of like an ideal mm-hmm. 
situation is that there's a clear and obvious point, and this actually segues nicely into my next thing, okay. which is that it destigmatizes having to ask these questions. Mm-hmm. So it destigmatizes regularly getting tested for STDs. Um, it destigmatizes going to ask questions about this without it having to be hush hush, without feeling like you have to hide what you experienced. Um, it's like a normal thing. Um, and that there are free, readily available programs that provide various forms of birth control, whether it be barrier methods or, um, you know, medicine or what what have you. Mm-hmm. Forms of various forms of protection. Um, which side note, with my root canal, uh, he was like, he, I always tell the doctors whenever I get stuff done, I always tell them to tell me what they're doing because it's like really useful to me to know where they are. Um, I think that some people don't like that because it makes them anxious, but that's not who I am as a person. I'm also just really curious um, if you couldn't tell from knowing me my whole life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it might might feel like we've known each other our whole (laughs) lives, but that's technically still not accurate. Yes, that's true. Um, But he – they did a thing with my tooth where they basically – put like a blanket around it with just the tooth sticking out so that it would stay sterile. And that thing that they used was a dental dam. Yes, I saw you tweeting about this. <laughs> yes, and I giggled because I had never actually considered that dental dams would be used for dental work. So that leads me to um, how I reacted to seeing your tweet, uh-huh. which was, oh, I will... Uh, Google dental dam uh-huh. and I will get like the definition of this thing and I will extrapolate from there. And so I Google dental dam and the first results were about oral sex. Of course, because that's the only context. <laughs> Apparent, apparently. Yeah. And I remember too. Also, I I have never met anybody in my life who's actually used a dental dam for the record. Um, which speaking about our next point with empirical evidence, um, oral sex on a vulva is one of the like least likely ways you're going to get an STD. It depends on the STD and stuff like that, but or STI. I don't know what the lingo is now. Um, but it's just like there's less like there's fluids, but there's not so much like blood which can be the the thing that really like transfers diseases really easily anyway i don't know anybody that's actually used a dental dam but yeah they always used to be in in college they'd be like you can also cut a condom open and use that like just flatten that out (laughs) okay you said they there yeah we we have had some different experiences (laughs) who who is this they um Who, who is saying this to you so there was the safer sex workshop that I went to freshman year, which we don't have to talk about right now. Okay. So- <laughs> sounds relevant. <laughs> uh, well, this recently came up in my life in a way that we'll talk about later. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to talk about that on mic, are we? No. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> um, And there was the health center, which I regularly visited, and, and that was where I got my birth control for a long time. Mm-hmm. And also because I was attending some of the, um, like, on-campus club stuff, there would be various, like, the women's studies group would have 
different. They had like a um, like a sex toy person come once. The women's studies group you're you're referring to, of course, Women's Peak. That was the name of that organization, correct? What it was? <laughs> you seem like you don't even remember the real name that I'm making a joke on. No, I don't. It was called Women Speak, right? Oh, right. You're totally right. It was called that. But it was one word. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Women Speak. Oh, my w- God. How did I never know? How did nobody ever make a joke about that when I was around? I heard <laughs> a very different joke from a different sort of individual, which was probably made by 1,000 different people <laughs> at different times. Um, and... Uh, I don't know. Do I say it? It's not. I mean, it's offensive, but not in like a, oh, these words are, you know, by themselves are offensive. We'll it's say a, it and you can cut it out if you want. Somebody who who I considered, a, you know, you have friends in college who you there aren't really your friends, but you we went to a small school. You see them a lot. Yeah. You're on good terms. Yeah. But I did not like hang out. I did not like endorse this person. Yeah. I guess I follow him on Twitter, so I sort of endorse him in that way. Um, he made a joke about he was going to start an organization on campus, which he called, all one word, men don't listen. <laughs> that's not That's not offensive. I mean, it is because it's coming. I mean, it's, it's offensive, but I, I was thinking it was going to be like rapey. <laughs> No, no, it's it could be much, much more offensive. Oh yeah, uh, but it's offensive because it's clearly like coming from a place of misogyny. Oh yes, that's yes, that's that's where it's offensive. But yeah, <laughs> and, but the reason that that has stuck in my craw for, for like <laughs> for ten, a decade, for like ten or more years, is is because he. He came up with and delivered the joke without thinking of an alt for don't listen. <laughs> like thinking when, of like a single word that could have worked. And he could have called it like men ignore. <laughs> or, or, or yeah, like, like it's, oh, was this person a writing major? Yes. Yeah, so it's like. Did I have any other friends? <laughs> It's almost like, wow, if only we had a way to learn about narrative structure and like but, how to form words together. There is there is an argument to be made that his joke is the funnier version because it's clumsy. Yes, like, that's clum- fair. Like the clumsiness is part of the, the humor. So I'm not sure whether to give him that credit uh, or whether to try to punch it up. So, yes, those were places that I was getting sex information in college. Yeah. So, yeah. So, basically, like, in, in an ideal world, like, all of that would be de- destigmatized. Like, it would be very clear where you go, where, when you need help, what kind of help is available, what services are available, um, that it would make sense to regularly be tested. I know that I got tested. I haven't had that many partners, um, like, intimate partners, but uh, I got tested between each set um just i didn't think i had stds but i just got tested and that was something that because i was very self-aware of this sort of stuff when i was 18 (laughs) um but uh 
you know, I don't think everybody does that. I don't think everybody can do that, especially if they're having multiple partners all the time. But, you know, getting regularly tested can help a lot in those situations, um, especially now that we have um, such amazing drugs. I mean, this this I think goes to the same section, when I, the same part of this, which I hadn't even thought of when I was doing this, which is that we have amazing drugs for HIV and AIDS right now. We have PrEP, which, like, coats all of your cells in this, like, armor is how it's been described to me. Okay. Which is essentially, like, birth control for, for HIV. Like, it's, like, ni- it's like the same percent effective. It's, like, 99.7 or 99.8 or whatever it is effective. And um, if you don't have HIV, you can take this drug and you're incredibly protected from catching it. By the same token, we have other drugs that um suppress the virus it doesn't get rid of it but it suppresses it to the point that it's undetectable so essentially you can't pass that that disease on sexually at that point or it's like again like 99 point whatever percent unlikely which is also a huge boon for um people with uteruses because they don't have to worry about passing it on to any children that they have Mm -hmm. so all of this would destigmatize all of that so it's not a matter of you know, you're bad or you're dirty or you're evil or you're sloppy or you're slutty. It's just a matter of we're doing this, we're working together, we have these things available, and you can do it. Okay. Can I jump Next. in here? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Unless you have more to say about destigmatizing. No. So I want to interject to say that what you just described makes sense and sounds to me like a very clinical and like science-based approach to reducing and removing uh, stigmas. Yes, which which sounds great to me. And yes. and the re- and part of the reason why is because I want to add to the conversation. That when I have witnessed efforts to destigmatize, mm-hmm. by and large, and I don't think that we, I don't think that we talk about this enough. Th- by and large, they strike me as being annoying because it's like somebody like I have AIDS. Well, because the because I think that the default approach to destigmatizing is we need to be loud, vocal, mm-hmm. in people's faces, brash and, and bold about talking about and or, you know, taking pride in the things that were, you know, the things that are stigmatized, therefore, yeah. we're they're supposed to be ashamed and we're not supposed to talk about them. And that manifests in, oh, it seems like when when people who are stigmatized for X, whatever mm-hmm. that is, when they're not being quietly ashamed of themselves, they they are uh, in my face and, and being annoying. <laughs> No, I think that's a really good point because I'm definitely emphasizing here that this should be like neutral. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like it should be good in the sense that like you should feel good about doing it because it should just feel like, oh, I know what to do. I have a plan. But it right. should be like all of these things should be viewed neutrally as easily as it would be like, you know, picking up 
Tylenol because you have a headache or, um, you know, having to go to urgent care because you stepped in a hole and right. broke your ankle. I, I feel compelled to give an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, this is tangential to sex education, but you, uh-huh. you've got me uh, reminiscing of course. About college uh, a lot. And I am remembering another time that stuck in my craw when, uh, so I had a professor. I don't think I'll say of what, but I will say it was not in the writing department. Okay. Or English. And uh, it was like an elective that I was taking. And he was uh, the whatever you would call the faculty member associated with a particular uh, fraternity. Okay. Yeah. The um, sponsor. He was their sponsor. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, I think we all understand in order to be a fraternity, you have to do some good. uh, And I guess this fraternity's cause was uh, breast cancer. Right. Okay. I so don't did, even remember which one it was, but I do remember things happening around that. It was, I believe it was Teak. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. And uh, we we can agree that there's there's some degree of his stigma historically. Yeah. Associated with breast cancer. Yeah. Audrey Lord writes really beautifully about it in the cancer journals. Just side note. That sounds uh, much more sophisticated than. What I'm going to contribute (laughs) related to the topic. Um, So basically, we're going through, uh, when I say we, Mm -hmm. uh, Dana and I, are moving through a common area where the fraternity has a table set up to take donations for Mm -hmm. breast cancer research, question mark. Yeah. I Uh, love when people are there like, it's for breast cancer. And it's like. Oh, yeah. Mm, Not quite. Uh, so the the faculty sponsor is there, mm-hmm. uh, and he is uh, an outgoing uh, guy, uh, or at least at least he's in that mode uh, at this moment. I I won't say more about that on mic. Um, <laughs> and uh, his approach to soliciting a donation was to recognize me, uh, you know, call me out by name. Mm-hmm. And he said something very much similar to or along the lines of, hey, Will, you like boobs, right? Oh, no. That's your girlfriend, <laughs> right? You must like her boobs. No, Will. No. Uh, yeah, yeah. That was. And I, I consider that a, a form of. Yes, that's Oh, this is terrible. how you are. <laughs> Stripping away the stigma yeah, and taking a casual approach. You're, you're destigmatizing by taking a casual approach to talking about the topic that we normally talk about in, in hushed tones if we talk about it at all. Yeah. And, and I, I remember. And I was not okay with that approach. No. I found I'm it sure Dana loved annoying. that. <laughs> Dana's just like me. She's like mm-hmm. very much like she'll she'll just get naked if you ask her. <laughs> she I and I not. are so similar in that way. I won't be responding to that. 
Um, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Dana has written that when she met me, she had never met anybody like me. I just like hugged her all the time and kissed her. And she was like, this person's so open with her body. And that she hadn't encountered that before. So I feel okay saying that because she wrote about it herself and published it. Um, <laughs> sure. But yes. And side note, those, I remember those campaigns too, because they would ha- be selling shirts that said like, save the boobies. And this is not specific to Teak or that like, mm-hmm fundraiser and every like it's like some people don't want their breasts anymore and that's Mm -hmm. okay or they get them taken away and then they're okay with it like it was almost like they swung too far in the other direction right Mm -hmm. anyway so yes that's that's that was a perfect example that's the thing is that i think when you take that in your face approach to destigmatizing i i don't have any delusion that you're coming from a place of this is how it should be. Yeah. It should be loud in your face and offensive and annoying. I I think that we're they we we slash we might have the same end goal. Uh-huh. The goal that you're describing of a sort of neutrality where it's accepted and everybody gets what they need mm-hmm. and it's accessible and it's easy and it's free. Uh, and and nobody's uh, ashamed or in the dark, but the, their approach is okay. We have to swing so far in the other direction, yeah, in order to balance the scales, and one day end up in that neutral place. Yeah, and I also I think this is a good place for me to mention too that like. What I'm suggesting here would be a huge cultural shift. Like, this would need to be systemic, systematic, across the board. Like, this would not be something that just happened overnight. Um, Yeah. The first step is just simply getting everybody uh, to listen to this uh, podcast. Podcast, yes. I, as an authority. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so, So, moving on. On from the destigmatizing part, it would all of this would be based on solid empirical based evidence, not hearsay, which seems really um, obvious, perhaps. Um, but I think that part of the problem with getting to consent and risk and destigmatizing it is that again, if you don't have um, education based if you have somebody coming and telling you it, unless you are abstinent you're going to get pregnant and an std because condoms break and even if your partner get test got tested they're probably cheating on you you know that's not empirical based evidence um that's saying that's taking this tiny percentage of a chance and saying that is what's going to happen to you um and also because i think the other problem there is that like when when young people are are doing new things um with their own body by themselves um with other bodies they when these things don't happen it's also confusing <laughs> it's like oh i got away with it this time so like those behaviors which may be fine or they may be not as safe as they could be um the more you get away with it, the more you just sort of do it and you maybe aren't taking the risk mitigating factors that are going to prevent you from ending in a place that isn't super great. Mm-hmm. Um, so the next part there 
also related to this sort of empirical-based evidence that I – and I mentioned this a little bit earlier with dental dams – is it's intersectional. So it's not just teaching um, about this PIV cishet sex. It's going to be teaching about um, queer sex. It's going to be teaching that there are other sorts of acts that you can do that are perfectly safe and healthy um, that are not going to be one thing inserted into another – um, I feel like also just the fact that like, you know, you'd think that abstinence advocates would be all about masturbation and clearly they never are. Um, but yeah, that's a great way to not get pregnant. <laughs> and if we taught people that that is a safe and fine alternative and the ways that you can do that, that would be wonderful. Um, but also like, you know, this, this would never be a one size fits all these are really general things, but the way that this stuff is taught would never be a one-size-fits-all. Like, you need to cater the sort of education to the community that you're looking at socioeconomically, culturally, all of that. And so that's also where the intersectionality is going to be coming in here. Um, and finally, in an ideal world, this would support people who do find themselves um, with a result – um, that they were not expecting or that they did not intend or that they did not um, want from um, being sexually active in some sort of way, right? Again, with neutrality, whether that be they got pregnant, whether that be they got an STD, STI, whether that is that they were assaulted, um, it would it would have a clear and obvious support system for those people to be able to then make the choices to be able to take care of themselves and heal as best as possible. Um, all of those things um, would be great. <laughs> that would be comprehensive sex education that I think would actually, you know, it would be, again, it would be, it'd have to be this huge cultural change that would be really hard to get a lot of people on board with, um, which we'll get, we'll get into this in, in a second. Well, not in a second, in a while. Um, but I was looking at this one particular article that was from the, um, the, like, American something of obstetricians and gynecologists, and they said that, um, data have not shown that all programs are equally effective for all ra ages, races, and ethnicities, socioeconomic groups, and geographic areas. There's no one-size-fits-all program, which is what I was saying about intersectionality. But then it says, however, one key component of an effective program is to encourage community-centered efforts. Innovative, multi-component, community-wide initiatives that use evidence-based adolescent pregnancy prevention intervention interventions and reproductive health services, um, including inclusion of moderately or highly effective contraceptive methods, such as long-acting reversible contraception, have dramatically reduced pregnancy rates. Um and so basically, my my other takeaway here is that with really comprehensive sex education, it would have to be something that everybody was in on. It would have to be community-based. Um, and I was reading in either a different part of this article or maybe on the article from Planned Parenthood that, once again, I mean, this is related to my abortion episode from season one, um... When you have these things in place, people do have sex less. <laughs> They're less likely to have um, sex when they have all these resources available to them because they feel comfortable 
waiting until they have the partner that they feel comfortable with or they have the 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 emotional maturity they don't feel pressured to do it as much they are able to talk through consent um and then when they do have sex they're less likely to get pregnant and get stis um much like how in the abortion episode when i said there that we need a comprehensive sex education the more access that people had to those resources the less likely they were to have abortions there were less abortions um and so if you know people really do want children you know young people um and teenagers and and young adults to be having less sex um uh, this would be the way to do it it's been proven um and then the sex that they do have is safer it's more risk mitigated and it's more supported um so that it's healthy um like emotionally and because part oh i guess part of this too which i didn't totally discuss is like when it's early and age appropriate and it's dis- discussing consent we're also keeping in mind here that this isn't just physical it also talks about the emotional ramifications the psychological ramifications like what it means to be, have a good relationship in general what intimacy means in general um it's talking about um um intimate partner violence um signs to look out for there um so it's just overall helping people so that is my first, that's act one. Mm-hmm. Do you have any further notes or questions or anything? I don't think so. I think I'm ready to move on if you are. So the reason I have been thinking about this so much, the reason I can't get this out of my head yeah, is because I just keep thinking that if we had proper sex education in this country, we could have dealt with COVID a lot better. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I've been, this is what I want to name the episode. I want to name it Galaxy Brain. Because oh, I feel like I've fun. really, I feel like I've really been galaxy braining about this. Mm. We're like, it's almost one to one. And clearly it's not like a perfect metaphor because they're two different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and clearly there is overlap because it's both health initiatives. But this has been driving me nuts, right? Yeah. Like the consent thing specifically, right? We don't, we as a, as a country, like, I mean, even if you just think about the way that we deal with romance, right? This isn't even, like, necessarily, like, sex. But, like, romance, like, you wait for someone to kiss you, right? You, like, that's the way it is in every TV show. Is, like, you're either going to kiss, like, waiting for the perfect moment to kiss someone. Or you never you never see somebody ask, can I kiss you? <laughs> Or like, you know, it's the same thing with getting married. And this drives me nuts. Like this is, I think, become less of a thing in in this day and age. But the idea that you'd surprise somebody with an engagement, not like when the engagement happened, but just in general, like I think he's going to ask me to marry him. Oh my God, have you not discussed this? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Like the, both of these things that I'm talking about here are things that um, rely really heavily on having both parties consent because it's something that both of you are doing together. And that with COVID, right, is like people have varying levels of comfort with what they're willing to do in terms of consent. Like, Are you willing to wear masks? Are you not willing to wear masks? It's shifted over time with people getting vaccines. It's shifted over time with people getting COVID. Where like, you know, I've known people who were not doing indoor dining at all and then they got COVID. Mm -hmm. And now for them, they're like, okay, well, I've been free from COVID for a month. 
So now I feel okay going to indoor dining because I'm triple vaccinated and I had it. So it just seems really unlikely that I'm going to get it again right now. Right. I, I, if I'm uh, smirking or smiling, or I'm, I, I'm thinking of a few different things. But, but one thing that's striking me as amusing is I've been thinking a lot recently just about what what is there left to talk about uh, in the in, for the podcast. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, I can't, I, I can't believe that I had not really considered that one or both of us was going to, to talk about COVID and what, <laughs> <laughs> and like, like, what lines we will and won't cross, and and what other people uh, do that's uh, good or bad. Um, but I, I did think of something I wanted to float uh by you as a subtopic and i want to interject it here because it feels like we are you're steering the conversation farther away from sex and sex education yes and you brought up you use the words like in this day and age and (laughs) and earlier you said something about how like our generation might be uh different or or moving gradually in a different direction i want to know if you have an opinion on look if if something is being written about on the internet Mm -hmm. i probably just know it as a headline or a series (laughs) of different headlines yes a series of headlines that have created its own essay in your mind exactly so because of headlines of articles that I have not read, I have a vague sense that there's been an, a conversation happening about how our generation has less sex. Yes, I have noticed this. Yeah. So I wanted to, you made me think of that, and I just wanted to bring that up to know A, do you have any kind of a clearer sense of that conversation than I do? And B, do you have any opinion about it? So, yeah, I've seen a couple of graphs um, about this. And it seems to be rooted in a few things from what I can tell. Though I'm talking off the top of my head, so I could be totally wrong here. Yeah. Um, I mean, the first is that basically people are stressed. Mm-hmm. And so when I say that they're stressed, I mean like um, in the past two years, there's been a pandemic. So that's been like really stressful for people. And then outside of that, so many people from our generation are working lower paying jobs that require more hours of them. Mm-hmm. And so there's just like less time. Right. <laughs> like it's not like. Um, you know, if you are a teacher and then you're also driving Uber at night because your teacher salary sucks, like you could be, you know, an a a quote unquote, I put in quotes because we know that education comes from different places, like highly educated person um who is, you know, working paycheck to paycheck. And so right. you're not going to have time to date, yeah. you're not going to have time to um be having casual sex. We're overworked and we're too tired and we're not wealthy enough. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the past, quote unquote, 
you know, you could have a um a job that you maybe started right out of high school um that was really solid. Uh maybe you're part of a trades group, maybe you are part of a union, maybe you have a pension, maybe you actually already have a wife or a husband. Um and you just have more time <laughs> because you're like more stable. Like you're not worrying like where am I going to live? Yeah. It's like you own a house based off your non-college degree needing job and you know, you can just do it. It's like fine. So yeah, I think I think that yeah, that seems I, that's my answer to that. That sucks for people. I don't think I'm one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> um, it has been interesting to me. I will say this, speaking in no specific terms, it has been interesting to me for me to garner how much the people I know who are my age, how frequently they're having sex. Uh, because it seems to be different than me. Mm. And I don't think I'm that um, lustful. <laughs> interesting um it seems to be less than me is what i mean well you you uh, it, was it in the context of a tweet i i think it must have been because we didn't talk i guess it also could have been on facebook I don't, who cares uh, you 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 were very pleased and proud to get a compliment recently from someone yeah yeah, you 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 can say the rest. So this is this is actually from a few years ago, but I think about it all the time because it was one of the best compliments I ever got. And I will say on the podcast, it was from our devotee of the pod. Oh sure. We were talking about. Um, I was talking about AWP, and I was like, God, why can't we just like every time I go to AWP, I just want to be like, you know, like I just want it to be someplace warm. I want us to all go to a party. I want like I was like, let there be a hot tub. Why don't we have a reading in a pot tub where people in a hot tub where people only read sexy poems? Like that sounds great. Mm -hmm. And Sarah said, something I love about you. And previous to this, I had just said to her, like, something I love about you is, and I don't remember what I said to her, but she was in mm. the context, she was mirroring that comment. Mm -hmm. She said, Something I love about you is that you're always horny in a non-threatening way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. like, yes, it's true. I would like us to all kind of be a little bit naked and like. <laughs> yeah, that's. Yeah. Like just comfortable. <laughs> there's something there's something there that it's like, yeah, that that hits the nail on the head. Like, but there's more to, there's more to it than that. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, she, she really put her finger on something. But that that also like implies something else. Yeah. Which, which is, look, you're you're pansexual. Mm -hmm. You are a queer person, despite uh, being, you know, uh, cishet yourself and married to a cishet man. And there is some, there is something, there's something to that. That involves uh, a desire for everything to be a little bit sexier without being actually like sexual. Yeah, that's true. Yes, like that. Like what 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 Sarah's comment only sort of half gets to in my mind is like 
horny implies something that is actually, I think, a little bit contrary to what's really going on. <laughs> That's fair. It begs the question, can you be, I guess, obviously, it's different for men and women and different sexualities and different um, genders. But how, to what extent is it possible to be horny in a non-threatening way? And I, <laughs> and I think, and I think to the extent that it is possible, it requires a sort of stripping away of actual sexual desire from, mm-hmm. from desires that seem like they would normally be sexual. Yeah, that's true. It's all my affections. Mm-hmm. That's why I sent out my emails for 16 years, 18 years, all my affections. I remember. <laughs> yeah, no, you're totally right. And I think, too, I mean, I think, too, this is like a greater, I think this is actually related to the sex education stuff, too. Um, but something I talk to with my friend Tara a lot, she she's like, you embody this, and it's like, it's sort of tangential to the conversations around polyamory that I see a lot right now, which is the idea that like, you know, one of the sort of tenets of polyamory when it's done correctly is that um, the really high level of communication and the really high level of knowing that you can have intimacy with somebody without the possessiveness and jealousy of that oftentimes, but not always comes along with monogamy. Um, And I think that that's part of what to circle back again, Dana was talking about in that essay that she, or the interview she did with me that started with a little essay, um, which is that like, I have always um, just really valued um, the sort of, intimacy that I can have with friends that isn't necessarily only romantic or sexual intimacy and that that ends up I think making me like because I also could never be polyamorous (laughs) side note not because I actually have any ethical issues with it I just think that it's like I don't have the time who has the time not who has the time Will not not most millennials (laughs) Like I have, I barely have enough time to hang out with my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have to find someone. It's like God finding Kenny was hard enough. <laughs> was it though? You found him. You found each other pretty young. And- we found each other pretty young, but I will say, like, when I look back at my youth, it's not that I didn't make out with a lot of people, but I just was feel like I was trying to make out with people all the time and I was shot down most of the time. It felt like a struggle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, oh, why can't, like I was just always trying to get women to make out with me. It was just like only worked out once and then it didn't even work out because that person's a trans man now, a gay trans man. Yeah, that's funny because um <laughs> Uh, I don't know if I want to get into that. Um, you've seen Scrubs, right? Yes. Okay. Have you seen Scrubs enough to remember? I think it was from Scrubs that I got the idea of gay chicken. God, that's ringing a bell. This but... seems really fun and 
not charged to talk about in 2022, right? (laughs) (laughs) To talk about, like, two straight men, like, (laughs) like, daring each other to do something homosexual. Like, that's... That I used to. Seem can I tell you? anymore, right? I basically did that same thing with one of the four people that I've slept with. So, I, so, so, <laughs> the reason I bring it up uh-huh. is because I engaged in that with one person in particular. Uh-huh. To the extent that one time, you know, what do you do in a game of chicken? You, you know, who's going to pull away first? Uh-huh. And one way that the game can end is that no one pulls away. And you kiss. Yeah, and 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 two people's uh lips uh touch one another, <laughs> however briefly. <laughs> um that person is a trans woman now. Oh, wonderful. So that's that's the funny parallel to <laughs> to your experience. That's so funny. We both, ah, oh, so frustrating. I mean, it's frustrating for me because I, I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before and I've lost touch with this person. They like defriended me. Um, But when he called me to tell me that he was a trans man, um, I was literally the day after I had my knee surgery. So it was like April, it was like May 1st, 2010. And... I said, oh, my gosh, I'm so proud of you. Thank you for telling me. I really appreciate this. Like, clearly, I still love you the same. Um, like, did you pick a name? And he told me the name he picked. And I was like, that's such a beautiful name. And, you know, I said, I just want to let you know, like, um, this doesn't change how I feel about you. I still care about you and I want to support you. And he said, um, well, it does change one thing. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, you've never kissed a girl. And I just like deflated. Like, because I was clearly not going to tell this person like, hey, uh, that's really panphobic <laughs> when you're in their middle of their coming out as a trans person. <laughs> when like my pansexuality was clearly not the thing that gets me like attacked on the street, right? <laughs> um. But it took me a long time to feel okay about that and later and like to be like, oh, no, that was a shitty thing for him to say to me. And mm-hmm. I I know that it was probably because he was like justifying his own sexuality. He had not come – and gender. Like he had not come out as gay yet. He was just out as a trans man at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, So I think it was really affirming for him. Um, but it was not for me. And then I was already with Kenny. So it was like, at the time, it felt like, oh, I've, I've missed my chance to prove that I'm pansexual. Mm -hmm. I can't prove it anymore. Right. Um, I just have to hope that people believe me and that I'm not lying. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and luckily I moved past that. (laughs) Yeah, this is, um... The uh, your galaxy brain take on sex education and COVID is not what I was thought we were going to talk about today, but it has led me to some of the same preconceived notions of subtopics that I thought were going to come up in another conversation that I thought you were going to initiate. Yeah, right. And that is, um, I hope that you won't think that this is panphobic, but 
I'm considering the possibility that it is and 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 okay. tell me so and and just uh, I'm hoping that I won't hurt you. I'm fe- here with open arms to hear your thoughts and work through I them. I hope with that, you. That, that that this won't hurt your feelings. I uh this is I think this is sort of validating or repeating in different words something that you just said. Yeah. I I myself whether I'm straight or not is sort of irrelevant. Oh yes, uh huh. I don't think of myself as straight as much as I think of myself as in a in an exclusive monogamous relationship. Like, yeah, I, sex. You know, it's I'm I'm with one person, and you're both cis, it's and a, you're both it's a, it, opposite of each other. So yeah, it, when it comes to quote unquote, yeah. So it's it, yeah the way that that uh aligns with you mm-hmm. is that you're pansexual because you I you identify that as describing your desires or you know feelings more generally your your uh just tendencies which are just emotional and mental mm-hmm. but are not going to manifest in behavior or activity um and that with real human people right and there's a lot that goes on in the old noggin right yeah right exactly (laughs) um but uh yeah there you're i think i heard you say something that implied like oh there's like a legitimacy to you know crossing that line into action and behavior yeah uh, over just what your preferences are in your head. Yeah. And I think the thing that really helped me, um, first off, I think that the way you're thinking about your own sexuality is um, fun and interesting and good. <laughs> um, but I think that um, there's this uh, person who was, I found this person originally from BuzzFeed and they've recently come out as non-binary. Gabby Dunn. Have, have you ever run across Gabby Dunn on the that internet? That name she, sounds familiar. They're, they're kind of like an internet person. Sure. Um, they um, were, I forget where I heard them say this, but at one point they were like doing some sort, because they do a bunch of things and they said, you know, sexuality is about desire, not action. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I heard that, that was when I was able to sort of let go of this like one offhanded comment that right. my ex had made to me on the phone. Right. Yeah. And I think too, for me, it's like being pansexual is very much like, it's not for everybody, but for me, like I just really identify with queer culture. Right. And so like, yeah, it's like, but also I feel like my relationship is queered by like, I think I queer my relationship with Kenny. That's not to say that we aren't passing as a straight cis couple and that we don't get privileges from that. But um, I think that that influences the way that Kenny and I talk about our relationship and move through the world, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I, I've had this on the brain because as we talked about before we started recording, um, we just last night went to... Uh, production of Romeo and Juliet, uh, which is put on by a local uh, company called uh, Shakespeare. Uh, mm-hmm. They they take Shakespeare plays and they queer them. They do a queer 
production of them. So in this case, I mean, look, I'm not going to name everything that makes it a queer production, but like the first and foremost, most obvious thing is that both Romeo and Juliet were played by women. Um, if I can make that presumption, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. for, for shorthand, I'm going to make the presumption that everyone presenting femme in the production, I can identify, I can femme. call a woman. Yeah. Um, Romeo and Juliet were both women and they also changed the words enough so that Romeo's pronouns were she, mm-hmm. her. Um, so go, I, I've, uh, this is the first time post COVID that I've gone to one of these productions prior to COVID we'd seen at least two, maybe three. Um, yeah. I, so, I had, when Sarah said that you were going to this, I actually knew what she was talking about. Yeah. So, so we've been in this, uh, space multiple times and, uh, and it is a space and it is a space that I enter and I look around and I recognize I am, uh, th- you know, this event has created a queer space and I am entering the queer space and I can look around and I can look at each individual and I can go, am I the straightest and most boring person here in this sort of large group of people? Mm-hmm. And and I can easily come to the conclusion that like I am a contender for, uh-huh. for that title. Um, and so, uh, that's, that's just one reason why this is on my mind more than, uh, more than usual. Yeah. That makes sense. Is because, you know, I'm thinking, well, well, I like being here. This is Shakespeare is great. It's one of the, yeah. it's one of the best things I know of in my local community. Mm-hmm. You go there and it's just like, oh, this is what it's all about. This is what. This is what people should be doing. This is what this is what you do with like a life well spent. Is yeah, just like, I know exactly what you mean. You just like you make a bunch of props and costumes, and you put on a show, and you and you do Shakespeare, but you update it and you and you queer it, and it and it's like oh okay yeah, that's uh that's one one of the best things that you could you could be doing, and it's great to to go and support it and be a spectator if you're someone like me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, that just sort of, that just sort of provokes uh, thoughts and questions of like, okay, um, if, if I admire this so much, I, I ultimately, I think the, the point that I, I have to arrive at is like, if I tried to, fit in a little bit more mm-hmm. myself in that space it would it would be uncomfortable it it would mm. it would be it would feel like well it would feel a bit like drag i guess but like yeah but like, no, i know what you mean but like drag on someone who's never done drag and and would probably uh, offend someone <laughs> by, <laughs> by by the attempt uh, it, it would, it would, it would be, um, you know, I would be posing. Yeah. And I think too, I know Ken, I, I have, so my friends, my dear friends, Kate and Elise, who I've, I've mentioned on this podcast before who are married. Um, I always joke that, um, 
Elise is me and Kate is Kenny, which works out because, you know, Elise has the vowel and the L and the letter at the end of the alphabet. And I have the E and the L and the letter at the end of the alphabet. And then Kate and Kenny both start with Ks. Um, But Kate and Kenny are both the quieter of the two of us or of the four of us. Um, But when they do talk, it's just like very cutting. (laughs) And um, I was talking to Kate once about Kenny and I was like, and I think this sort of gets at what you're saying to a point, to a, to a point too, which is that I said to Kenny or I said to Kate, I was like, God, whenever I read stuff about men or like, you know, I'm reading about like masculinity, I'm like, ah, but Kenny's not like a man. Right. And she was like, I was like, I'm sure that's offend. I'm sure that that's like, I know that that's not exactly right. I'm sure that's offensive to like people that have actual different understandings of their gender identity than than just Kenny. And she was like, she thought for a second and she was like, because what we were talking about specifically was about how I have just all of these coworkers that have these like shitty husbands mm-hmm. <laughs> and that like will wake, like one of them woke their wife up to make them a snack at 10 p.m. And I was like, she told me the story as if it was oh, par for the course. I see. And I was like, he what? She was like, well, he just wanted a snack. I was like, you were asleep? <laughs> I was like, that man can drive to the gas station and get a fucking snack. Like, this was not the point of the story. And I was just like, I was like, I was like, walk me through this again. <laughs> I was like, he can make his own. He is an adult. He woke you up from your slumber so you could cook for him. I was like, and it what? A uh, what? He what? Like, I was horrified. And she just was like, I don't know. Um <laughs> She she also said to me once, God bless her, she said, I was saying how we don't eat very much meat, and she said, you mean your man just isn't hungry if he doesn't eat red meat? And I was like, there's a lot to unpack in that sentence. It's like a lot, a lot going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, but so we'd been talking about that, and Kate sort of went, hmm, yeah, I guess all of the men we're friends with who are in heterosexual relationships are whatever the gender is that Kenny is. Mm-hmm. Um, which is to say that I feel like sometimes, especially when you're looking, and I know that this is, you know, clearly these are not, this is not true across the board and toxic masculinity exists in queer relationships too. But I do feel like sometimes Kenny has said to me, like, when I, when I did Mortified, Mm -hmm. I did it for Pride Month. And so everybody that we hung out with at the bar afterwards was queer. And Kenny was like, um, this woman Mulligan, her name was Mulligan. She was the um, part, the girlfriend of one of the women who had performed with me. She and Kenny had sort of like paired up and had been hanging out the whole time. And like when we performed in Baltimore, like they're from Baltimore. So like all of their friends were there and they just sort of like brought Kenny in. It was like all these lesbians and yeah. like Kenny and Kenny's just like sitting there like small and quiet. Yeah. And Kenny finally said to me, he was like, why do I feel most comfortable about around gay women? Right. And I think that part of that, you know, it was the same thing with you where you're like, you know, this is the life best lived. I feel like part of that is just like similarly to how when some people who are from marginalized communities are suddenly in a space where they don't have to worry about the pressures of like being talked over or somebody not understanding their culture Mm -hmm. or their background. I think that sometimes I think for Kenny and for, for some men, too, when they're suddenly in a community or a group or an event that sort of is decentering their own masculinity right. it's suddenly very comfortable because like they 
feel like they're surrounded by people that are just going to see them as who they are, maybe. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like with Kenny, too, it just feels like Kenny's like a quieter dude. And so for him, it's just like, oh, like, I don't, like, I'm not the leader here. Right. (laughs) I can just be. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, That absolutely uh, makes sense. And that is relatable. You know, I think that I'm not exactly like Kenny. I'm not as quiet as Kenny, but there are definitely contexts in which I behave more like Kenny and uh, I retreat uh, more. Um, But there's, look, there's something, there's something a little bit, a little bit left of center I think about each of us. Yeah. But not far left enough of center. Yeah. To really like change like our pronouns or like yes. the like the way that we identify. And uh s- something in that space means that okay, if it won't if it if it is not far off enough to manifest in uh like a pronoun change or, or something like that then it then it manifests in creating a uh, a podcast yes <laughs> yes when we have kind of long nuanced conversations well it's like certainly i i'm a man i cannot help that yeah exhibit a i created a podcast <laughs> With me, but, but, right? But but same context, different person. Yes, you are not a man. You created you created a podcast with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but you you know you've done a lot of self reflection. There's nothing that I could say about you that would shock you. <laughs> it's true. You you've considered how you you know how you are, and you know that your communication style is not exactly traditionally feminine. Yes, this is true. That's true. I'm going to frame this another way. I'm going to take another risk. Okay. By telling you a thought that I've had. Yes. If you were a man Uh and you communicated the same way you do now, uh-huh. I think that you might be insufferable. <laughs> <laughs> well, can I tell you, I actually um, am very conscientious of the way that I communicate mm-hmm. in the sense that um, I'm trying to buck what might be. I mean, I think it comes fairly naturally to me, but I think I'm trying to buck um, falling into something that I know could be harmful to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has fucked me before. Um, like, you know, I don't stay quiet if I see that there's a problem. Right. I try to be very kind and thoughtful and empathetic in the way that I convey that. Um, but I'm not a person to just let something that I see being an issue sit because I want to take care of the people around me. And so that oftentimes means advocating for them. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And more than once, I've said, hey, you know, you brought up this problem or I saw an issue and it seemed like it wasn't great and I've been pu- punished in in professional settings. Right. Uh, in ways that, uh, for example, when I was working at the writing center, we had this boss who was later fired because she was not doing her job, which is to say I was right. And when I sent her a letter that was like, hey, you brought up some problems at this meeting. I have some thoughts about maybe how we could address them. Um, She blocked me from the writing center schedule and told me that I was disrespectful and how dare I. And um, I had stomach pain for weeks because I was so nervous because she had just and and nobody protected me. Um, I went to the to the dean and was like, I didn't do anything. This is the letter. She's treating me like I, you know, was really disrespectful and I wasn't. And here's the proof. And the first thing he did was tell her immediately what I had said. Um, And this happened at work once, too, Mm -hmm. where I'm realizing I have um, fertilizer on my arm, which is not good. Um, (laughs) I fertilized the grass earlier. Um, I saw somebody bullying someone else. And I told my boss about it. And the first thing she did was tell her boss, which was the guy I had seen bullying someone. Perfect. And the response to that was I had to sit in a meeting by myself with this man and talk through it for two hours. And then I was put on a performance plan. It was not a real performance plan because literally nothing came of it after that day. Mm -hmm. But it was when when I started to feel like I was seeing something uncomfortable, I was supposed to talk about it with my boss. Like you did? Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, But, yeah, I mean, like, can you imagine if I, like, it was essentially, it was not this bad because I had not been the, the, this is the other thing, too, is, like, I wasn't even the quote-unquote victim of this. I had just, like, witnessed it. But it would be, like, it was so ridiculous because it was, like, it was as if, if I had been sexually harassed and HR's, HR's literal solution was to have me go talk it out with my harasser right. with no one else in the room yeah. and that person has many many levels upon me in the company which would be very bad and yes. and also that wouldn't surprise me very much at all if it was horrifying. if that happened um but yeah i think that i also think that in terms of my gender and my the way that i communicate I I think I sometimes think that I'm I don't really identify with the word woman that much. Mm-hmm. I think I am one, mm-hmm. probably. Right. The word that I actually the gendered word that I associate with the most is mother. Mm-hmm. I've always been a mother, even when I was a child. Right. <laughs> which doesn't make any sense, but it does to me. Um. I just I just like I don't give a shit about pronouns. I don't really give a shit about. My gender, for the most part, except that I'm a mother. So it makes sense to me that my communication style comes across that way. Yeah, I uh, I don't have a, a mother analog, uh, but other than that, what you said sounds sort of familiar to me. Is just I, my to to the extent that I've thought about it, I've thought like, well, it's not worth considering too much what the other possibilities are because I think that I cannot help but be a man by default 
<laughs> and uh and 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 I don't care yeah I don't I I am I'm in the privileged position of not caring too strongly what you like you yeah you you could not offend me by misgendering me um river butcher mm-hmm. before he, um he had transitioned yep. to river used to say that the thing that he identified most with womanhood was that he had been conditioned female. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I really identified with that when he said that it was like, yeah, like I feel like I'm a woman largely in part because most of my experiences have been through society viewing me as a woman. Right. But in and of itself, I just, it might, this doesn't make sense because I don't think I'm gender fluid, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But like my gender feels pansexual mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um i just feel very neutrally about it yeah except for this whole political aspect and socio conditioning aspect of it right right yeah i think yeah that sounds similar to my experience and the ways that i've thought about it for my own self i uh yeah you sorry you uh in in hindsight you might have messed up a little bit by telling me what you telling me a couple of things that that you were planning on talking about Uh Um, because I I feel responsible for steering the conversation in this uh, uh, gender direction and that is what I thought we, we were going to talk about. And I'm glad we talked about it because I'm excited to talk about it. I feel like now we have a foundation to talk about the other episode that I want to have in a few months. Uh, perfect. But but we, we I've we've we've spent too little time talking about. Oh yeah. So the other so okay so the consent thing with COVID right so mm-hmm. that's a big one right like if only we felt comfortable openly talking about what we consented to without feeling shame or like we would be disappointing somebody by saying no, I feel like that in and of itself, like even if the government hadn't been able to help us, like that would have been able to help us as individuals. Mm -hmm. But also, again, let's talk about resources. Like if only we had, it's the same thing, like regularly getting tested, regularly getting tested is one, two, one. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, clearly the empirical evidence thing is obvious. Um, But I feel like (laughs) part of what I'm talking about here is like, because clearly we know that like there are just some people who don't want to work off of ethos and logos. They want to work off of pathos. We know this. And so... This is where I'm saying it would need to be like this whole cultural shift too. But I just feel like if we were already comfortable with like interacting with health-based information in this sort of neutral fact-based way, we would have done a lot better with that when COVID hit. Mm -hmm. And then also like the intersectionality of it, right? We know that black people and and other people of color are – experiencing COVID rates at much higher percentages than white people are. Mm -hmm. That has, you know, there's a million reasons that we could talk about why that's true. 
But I think that if we had, you know, if we had the sort of education that started intersectionally, we would already have a basis for being able to convey that information intersectionally now. Um, And then, you know, like the supporting people (laughs) when they do have COVID. We don't have the systems to support people. Um, people don't have, like, time off or they don't have access to the medications they need. They don't have other support systems that can help them take care of their families. Um, you know, I, I have avoided COVID this whole time and so has most of my family. Um, I mean, everybody that I live with has. Um, a lot of my friends have avoided it. And I said something to my brother the other day where I was like, I was saying, like, if one of us gets COVID, it's going to shut us down for weeks. And he was like, well, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, no, dude, you don't understand. If one of us gets COVID, all of us have to stay home because I can't I can't morally send my child to a preschool where most of the kids can't even get vaccinated yet because they're under five. Not all of them are under five, but like mo- a lot of them are. Um, you know, I'm going to – that's assuming another one of us doesn't get sick and further push out whatever isolation periods. Like – and that's also assuming that we are like feeling better. We know that you could not be feeling better. So like let's say – let's say, you know, best – you know, maybe one of the best case scenarios would be one of us gets sick, nobody else gets it, and I'm testing negative really quickly. Let's say it's me. Like, I'm pro- I could still feel sick, which would be more of a burden on Kenny because now he has to do more of the housework. Now he has to take care of the kid. Has um, to cook his own snacks at 10 p.m. Has to guess his own snacks at 10 p.m. Can't be waking me up. No, Kenny just orders Papa John's. <laughs> Have I told you this? No. Do you know how many fucking times I've opened the fridge at 6.15 in the morning and there's fucking Papa John's in there? Papa John's. Because they're open late. And sure. he likes do, – do you know what he gets? No. Cheese sticks. Okay, yeah. Do you know what he calls it? Cheesy bread. Drives me nuts. My dad used to work at Papa John's. It's not fucking cheesy bread. It's called cheese sticks. <laughs> uh, yeah. I would probably also call it cheesy bread. <laughs> I've made cheese sticks before. Um, so, yeah, I guess this is where, like, I had tweeted about this once and a former a peer of ours had, who's um, famously bitter had just responded, what? And I said, what are you wetting? And he said, oh, nothing. <laughs> sure. Um. But I want to go one step further. I feel like I don't know what it, what's in between. It's like what's b- the step before Galaxy Brain? Huh. Um, big Brain. Big Brain. Re- so let's say hypothetically that that was actually Big Brain, and this is actually Galaxy Brain. Mm-hmm. Which is that like, why is it that we don't have these systems in place already? It's the patriarchy, Will. Mm. The patriarchy hurts everyone. Mm -hmm. The patriarchy hurts us all. Because if we didn't have this white, cis, heteronormative patriarchy, patriarchal system that rewards men being in control, 
women not getting agency, um, sexuality and gender that is ever perceived as being feminine, as being bad, um, which takes care of most of queerness, uh, any of those things, we would have probably a more reasonable sex education system that was not mired in all of these holdups, right? Where people are feeling shame, people are feeling fear, people are um, experiencing backlash from their community when they are sexually active. And so we probably would have been able to get to a place with COVID where, and Kenny pointed this out too, actually, which is like both of these things, and I mean, clearly this is sort of an obvious statement, but, you know, gender and sexuality and health in general is politicized, right? It's seen as something that instead of being this neutral thing, which is what it should be, that's what I mean when I say it's being politicized, because um, I think everything is really inherently political, but blah, 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 whatever. Um, instead of being seen as this sort of baseline neutral thing, they're so highly politicized that it ends up harming vulnerable populations. Because the patriarchy, Will. Mm-hmm. How many times do I have to say it? <laughs> so that's my galaxy brain. Right. That's. I think that's mostly what I wanted to talk about. So I think it's fine that we went off the rails a little bit there. It's just like, this has been driving me nuts. Like, I can't stop thinking about it. Every time this comes up, I'm like, if only we had the ability to talk about these sort of like intimate subject matters more openly and freely, we probably would have been a lot better off. Mm-hmm. Um, because also, so, okay, sorry, here's another thing. Yeah. When you are, this goes back to that very key conversation that we had in health class that I was talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Which is that to prevent STDs and pregnancy, you actually can't just do one thing. Like, yes, is maybe being on hormonal birth control the singular most effective thing besides not interacting with any other humans? Much like is not going outside and ever seeing another person the most effective way to avoid getting COVID? Is abstinence the most effective way? Yes. But besides that, you have either hormonal birth control or an IUD, something like that, something medically implanted in you, um, or a you know, shot into your arm or that you take a pill of. Same as we have vaccines. But you can't just rely on that. You need to take a multi-pronged approach that includes consent, that includes being informed about where your partners have been, that includes other barrier methods, Will. Mm -hmm. One-to-one masks, Mm -hmm. like condoms, Will. Yeah. Thank you for putting that in my head. (laughs) I will surely think of every time I put on a mask now. Every time you sneeze when you're wearing a mask. (laughs) That sucks. <laughs> Will is so sad right now, everyone. Will is like visibly disgusted and also sad. That sucks to think about. <laughs> He's like rearranging his shirt. Uh, I've been doing that a lot in case you hadn't noticed. But yes, that that's my galaxy. I just can't. It's yeah. like I keep running into it and I just feel like no. it's one of these things where I just feel like this is where it feels like a conspiracy theory where I just feel like nobody understands me, Will. Right. <laughs> Yeah, completely. That makes sense. You've you've made me think of something probably unintentionally. This this doesn't really speak to your larger point uh directly, mm-hmm. but uh talking about your experience of not uh uh you know of of avoiding COVID 
you and your uh, closest loved ones avoiding COVID for for now over two years. Um, it's similar to my own experience. And part of what you were saying was about um, your, uh, you know, the vaccination not being enough, but you have to decide for yourself what your comfort level is and what you mm -hmm. do differently in different contexts. And like last night at Shakespeare, uh, I saw a few people put on their masks, but we were outdoors. Yes. It was not like some public gathering situations that I've entered into where you had to show your vax card or mm -hmm. a negative test. There was no checking for anything like that. And there was not really any social distancing measures being taken. It was just like a smallish crowd of people hanging out outdoors, mm -hmm. mostly not wearing masks. Um, one of my friends I was there with is more immunocompromised than... Uh, the average person, mm -hmm. if I may use that terminology, uh, I don't know of a better way to describe that, <laughs> but, uh, I, they're not having maybe I also, the common, I like to say common experience. I feel mm, like common yeah. is a good way to describe things when you're talking about somebody who's maybe on more of on the extremes of something because it doesn't, it's not saying that it's normal or regular. Right. Yes. It's just saying that if you're looking at pure numbers, it's common. Right. Average is the word that I used because I was trying not to use the word normal. Yes, exactly. Um, but yeah, is common farther away from normal than the word average is from the word normal? Yeah, maybe so. So maybe I'll start using And, and I don't know. I think average is also fine. But I think that I have found that saying common for me at least, has felt like the yeah, most accurate. I think it's fine, but also I, it's hard for me to know because I'm doing something in the background of what I'm saying. In my head, I'm going like, don't say normal. <laughs> so so that makes me think like, oh, is it like, is, a, is saying average just as bad as saying normal? Um, anyway, uh, I saw them wearing a mask not the entire time we were there, but for a portion and I was thinking, oh, I hope that they're not too uncomfortable in this situation, knowing that most of the people they're surrounded by are not wearing masks, including me. I had a mask mm -hmm. in my pocket. Uh, I did not put it on at all because I felt comfortable because we were outdoors. I feel very comfortable outdoors. And there's a lot of empirical evidence to suggest that being outdoors is is very safe comparatively to being indoors. Right. And I was, uh, I did sit in the back and I did uh, and the wind was blowing conveniently so that uh, the people in front of me were not releasing particles that were being blown towards me. <laughs> however, you were, you were, you were particling them. However, in terms of um, sound waves for hearing the performance, it was not convenient <laughs> <laughs> that the wind was blowing in the direction it was blowing. But, um, you know, part of the part of what I was celebrating about the Shakespeare model of putting on a show is that when you put it on, you don't you don't do it because it's good. 
yeah, or because it's perfect, or because it's you know as good as it can. You do it because, a, you know, a certain amount of time has elapsed, and you have to put on another show. And yeah. and part of what's to celebrate is what's uh, ramshackle about it. Uh, and this was a ramshackle scenario where uh, it was much harder to hear some performers than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's fine. Um, so, okay. The point that I was, I, I think I was trying to uh, make was um, I have not been uh, personally uh, medicated for any, uh, 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 mental illness or, or psychological phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I know people uh, who have, and I've taken a few uh, psychology classes when I was a, oh, an yes. undergraduate. Uh, uh, hint, hint, hint. <laughs> context for an <laughs> earlier story. Uh, and uh, something that I learned, I think I might have learned this as early. I took a psychology class in high school, and I might have heard about this as early as then, is that there's a phenomenon of uh, someone, say they have depression or they have anxiety, they're prescribed a medication, they manage it with medication, they feel better, mm-hmm. and in feeling better, they think, Oh, now that I'm now that I'm better, I don't need these meds anymore. Yeah, that's what happened to David Foster Wallace. Right, exactly. Um, forgetting that the meds are a significant part of the reason why they yes. are feeling better, and in fact, they need to keep taking the meds in order to maintain yes. feeling better. Um, and that is, uh, I bring that up. Because now, now we're at a point where I've been vaccinated for like a year, mm-hmm. and uh, for for during the height of Omicron, I was in a workplace where there was a mask mandate, and it was mm-hmm. like a particular kind of mask. It was like cloth masks are not going to cut it anymore. Mm-hmm. Get out your KN95s or whatever. That uh, yeah, I only side note. I only wear N95s now. Yeah, I, yeah, we have KN95s, and that's yeah. all I've been wearing for a little while. And um, then uh, the mask mandate was lifted at my workplace. Now it is a recommendation rather than mm-hmm. a requirement. Um, I go to work. I uh, there. I uh, enter my office. As I'm entering my office, I see a sign in the window that says like "masks recommended in this space" or something like that. Yeah. I enter and I am greeted by people not wearing masks in the space. <laughs> they never do. No one ever does anymore. Mm-hmm. No one I work with is wearing them. Do you? Yes, I do okay. when I am moving around to be around people. Yeah, Most that makes sense. of my yeah. work day is spent in an office that where I am alone and I can shut the door. Yeah, that's how it is. Kenny's new job, he goes in um, sometimes and he wears a mask when he's moving around. But when he's in his office, he takes it off. But here's so here's my point. In mm-hmm. two years and change, 
I have not gotten COVID. Yep. Dana hasn't gotten COVID. My mm-hmm. closest friends haven't gotten COVID. It, it would, it, it's very easy for me to have the attitude of, I'm not going to get COVID. Yeah. It hasn't happened. It's not going to happen. So I can wear my mask less. Mm-hmm. When, but if I stop to think about it, I have to acknowledge the possibility that the the mask are the meds in this mm-hmm. analogy. Mm-hmm. That that if I that the that the mask and other measures that I've taken are the reason why I haven't gotten COVID. And yeah. If I stop taking the meds, wearing the mask, then uh it it'll all be for naught. And I think that this is also directly related to what I was saying in terms of like the education and the explaining risk. We were talking about sex education because what ends up happening is that some people then have sex and these things don't happen that they told were going to happen. I mean, even if you're just thinking about like, I know that some boys are told that if they masturbate, they'll go blind. And so I just feel like if you are a boy and you masturbate a bunch and you don't go blind, you're like, oh, well, that was a lie. And it is a lie. That's a lie. But I think that Wait, what? not having what? <laughs> That's a lie? <laughs> I have to go. (laughs) But I think that not having that evidence in front of you, I think that on the flip side of what you're talking about, there are people that haven't been wearing masks this whole time who haven't gotten it yet. And they're just like, this is a lie. Like, I look at me. I've been doing this behavior this whole time and I haven't gotten it. Right. Um, And 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 there's several. And there's it's a middle place. (laughs) There are several different possibilities. And one possibility is that they've been very lucky. And an, and an additional possibility is that part of the reason that they're so lucky is that in the in the coming years, science is going to study them. Yes. And by them, I mean maybe us. <laughs> I know, because isn't it – Sarah just said to me that – or Dave Ote, yep. that they think that maybe some of the people that haven't gotten it are just immune. Right. And we will figure that out in time, but it's going to take studies – of people like us, if indeed we are immune, which there's we- not really much reason to think that we are because we've been careful. If we've yeah. been careless and haven't gotten COVID, that might make me more think, oh, there's something there's something going on here. There's an underlying yeah. reason. But we've been pretty careful. And so, uh, yeah, there's there's... There's no way to know unless we get more careless and we test the limits of this thing. <laughs> and I do know, too, something that I think is interesting is Blake and I are clearly different people. <laughs> but we really do have a lot of medical stuff that overlaps in terms of how we react to drugs or um, our allergies. Just even something like – this is dumb, but like we both pick at our cuticles when we're nervous and like have really ripped up cute cuticles all the time. Hmm. And um, I didn't even know that about Blake until sort of recent – like within the year. And I was like, oh, do you pick at your cuticles? He was like, oh, yes, I know. I shouldn't do it. I was like, no, no, no. I do it too like constantly. Hmm. Um and Blake got it. So in my mind, it's like, well, Blake got it. So maybe I didn't. But then again, Blake does have some of his wisdom teeth and I don't have any of mine. So maybe I am really the superior one here. Yeah. Uh, you know this about me, right? I I had all my wisdom teeth removed. 
Uh-huh. Have I said this on I, I must have Tell tell me again. I must have said this on the podcast before. I had all seven of <laughs> my right. wisdom teeth removed. You had extra. Yeah. Fuck me. No thank you. Mm-hmm. I feel like you have room in your face for them though. I, your head's bigger than mine, I have a big yeah, I have a big head. Yep, you're not wrong. <laughs> I've been told that I have a little mouth by two out of the however many people I've kissed. Okay. Both Kenny and my ex-boyfriend Dustin, like one of the first times they kissed me, pulled back and sort of looked at me like this. And I was like, what? And both of them said, oh, you just have a little mouth. Mm. And I was like, the first time it happened, I was like, that's sweet. And then when Kenny said it, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't have room for wisdom teeth in this in this mouth. I, I apparently don't even have room for the tooth that got a root canal because it's yeah. not. it was not happy about it. Right. So we both have our own struggles, dentally speaking. (laughs) All seven. Did you get them out all at once? Yes, I did. They put you under for that, right? Yes, they did. What were you like on anesthesia? Uh, Does anyone really remember? Oh, I remember what I was like after knee surgery. I was weeping and swearing, and she told me not to swear because there were children. And I said, don't you fucking lie to me. There aren't children here. That would be inappropriate. I'm in a lot of fucking pain. Yeah, I think I've heard you tell that story. (laughs) Yeah, I don't remember being any particular way besides out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like you would if you were half asleep, half awake, and had a, you know didn't understand reality in the way that someone dreaming <laughs> would not understand. Yes. Uh, and uh, and then uh, I uh, I took uh, I was I was uh, I had Vicodin. Uh, Mm -hmm. for the pain after that and um, I remember two things happening in the wake of that one is that I saw the big Lebowski for the first time and I it was shortly after the surgery and I was quite (laughs) I was quite high Um, and the other is that I did have to go to school and I remember I feel like the way I remember this it was like my first day back I had a test to take in theology Oh God! And it was really like an <laughs> literally. E- it was like an essay writing type of a <laughs> oh, test, no. and I believe I got the highest grade possible. <laughs> <laughs> if I were, I think I did very well. I'm so pleased about that. That makes me so happy. Yeah, that's the way I remember that. Yeah, I I have an anecdote we can end on, please. Which is related to theology. Okay. That is unrelated to this whole thing, but I think it's funny. Great. I was watching a documentary on mushrooms while I was cleaning yesterday. May I ask, is it the same documentary on mushrooms that I've seen? Fantastic. Is it on Netflix? Is it Fantastic Fungi narrated by Brie Larson? Maybe. Is it, I just Googled, I just searched mushroom on Netflix and watched the first one that came up. <laughs> Uh, and did you have a reason for doing that other than you were just interested in, in the topic? Yeah. No, I just – I needed something on in the background and I didn't want it to be music. So you thought, oh, there's probably something about mushrooms on, on Netflix? Yes. Okay. Sure. <laughs> and there was. I'm just going to do that real quick and see what comes up. <laughs> but so they were interviewing a bunch of people about mushrooms or whatever – and one of the things they were – and something I love about mushrooms is that mushrooms were are not made for us. And I, I mean this. Like, if you look at, like, 
trees or plants, like so many plants co-evolved with us so that we would spread their seeds, right? Mm -hmm. And mushrooms did not do this. Right. Mushrooms are their own fucking thing. They're closer to to animals than they are to plants. Yep. And that's why we have mushrooms that both we can – like the fact that there are mushrooms we can eat is irrelevant to us. The fact – like it's not – it's inconsequential to anything to do with us. It's a complete coincidence. Yeah. Which this is also was, why they're- This was recently, right? That you watched this? Yesterday. Okay. That's that's <laughs> almost as recent as you can get. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I, uh, yeah I, I, I'm fairly certain that you watched Fantastic Fungi. I don't think I realized it was narrated by Brie Larson, which is unfortunate. She's so beautiful. Did you see she's going to be in the next Fast and Furious movie? No, I didn't. Vin Diesel posted a picture of them together. That's great news. <laughs> I know. Um, so anyway, this is this is why, you know, mushrooms can, you know, kill us or make us trip balls or make us trip balls and also kill us at the same time, right? Because it, their existence is inconsequential to our existence. We're like totally separate. Um, they don't care. Mushrooms don't care about humans. And so I was watching this documentary and they were saying that mycelium or mycelium is apparently how you pronounce it i've been saying mycelium my whole life and that's not how you say it it's my mycelium mycelium is like what we have some of the mycelium sorry (laughs) what we have the like oldest fossils of right we have fossils that are like billions of years old of mycelium Hmm. and mushrooms and so like mushrooms in a sense have existed longer than all of us have you know made it through all of us and so I said to Sarah, I was like, maybe the reason that when we eat some mushrooms, it makes us – oh, because also, you know that mushrooms, like psychedelic mushrooms have been used to treat things like PTSD and depression and I stuff, saw right? the movie, yeah. Okay. So um, – and I had been hearing about this earlier, previous to this too. So I said to Sarah, I was like, maybe the reason it makes us feel at peace with like death or whatever and makes us less depressed when we – you know, when humans take psychedelic mushrooms is because we're – eating god right yeah there's something to yeah there's sort of a theory that you're alluding to which i associate with with what the way that i've heard people talk about crystals (laughs) is that like oh they're like they're carrying uh uh, energies uh yeah and yeah maybe the fungi are so old uh, that they're carrying, like, the information of millennia yeah. that is, like, transferred to you when you consume it. My, yeah, my, you, you mentioned treating PTSD and depression. My, my takeaway from that movie was, you know, there's, they, they show, like, particularly, like, elderly people. yeah. Like being treated with like a mushroom trip, uh-huh. and coming out of it saying like, "Oh, I'm I'm so connected to everything in the universe. Like I don't fear dying. Like, di- yeah. like dying isn't the end. I'm just and I just like oh gee, I just watched that and I go like oh man, like if you can take a pill <laughs> and actually believe that, uh-huh. I might I might be okay." Yeah. <laughs> like that that might be the, you know, my greatest hope for years was oh, the solution to my problem is heaven. No, well, oh, of course. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Going back, yes, going back farther in my life. 
Yeah. The the assumption was yes, the uh, heaven. Yeah. And then abandoning that, <laughs> my uh, solution was oh, like uh, the singularity is going to happen in my lifetime. Yeah. Um. My my br- my mind will be uploaded to a computer that won't die or something like that. Yeah, you'll go to San Junipero. Yeah. And then assuming, uh, so now I have the understanding that, okay, that's a possibility still, but if that doesn't happen, at least there's this pill that I can take. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and just feel better about it. <laughs> right. And just be like, oh, okay, I don't, I'm not, af- I'm, I'm not afraid of that anymore. Yeah. I do remember the reason I specifically look for mushrooms mm. on Netflix. It's because they just released a study that said that they think that mushrooms talk to each other and they have up to 50 words. Mm. Because they have tested electric they can they've like looked at electrical impulses and it's not just that they're electrical impulses, they happen in patterns and mm-hmm. the patterns repeat over time right. in a way that they look like essentially what we would consider words. Right. That's why I was looking at mushrooms. Okay. But yeah, I too hope that if I'm ever, I'm not afraid of death, as we've discussed. This is a place we are not aligned. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. But if I am ever afraid, I'm glad that I have mushrooms to help me out. Yeah. Sounds like I'm going to need them before you will. But, <laughs> you know, it sounds like anyone could benefit from it potentially. Yeah. Um, so uh, cool uh, galaxy brain take. Thanks for for sitting through me through that. That uh, it, uh, no thanks necessary. That was a that was a fun way to uh, structure the episode, and uh, it was fun to take all the uh, divergent uh, tangential uh, paths of conversation that we went down mm-hmm. uh, that may not have been planned. Yeah, almost like uh, having a conversation with a friend on a podcast. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Well, 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 I don't know when I'll see you next, but... Um, well, I do. I mean, after this recording, but... But uh, you, it sounds as if you're forgetting, despite the fact that we are in the midst of preview season. Oh, right. I mean, I, I don't know when I'll see you again in the podcast space. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, probably next month. Yeah, and we'll have to fig- we'll figure out what we're talking about. Uh, yeah, I think I can take care of that. Nice. I haven't decided 100%, but... I remembered between yesterday and today that I have a fallback that I might fall back on. And, uh, but, but, uh, in the meantime, uh, follow the smug buds on Twitch because there's a new magic, the gathering set coming out this month mm-hmm. and we're going to be, uh, demon gangsters. It looks real fucking cute so far. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Liz. I'll see you later, and I love you. Love you, too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Will is on Twitter and Letterboxd at youngestofone, and his website is williamhoffacker.com. You can find Liz at exclamate on Instagram, at exclamate underscore on Twitter, or on her website, elizabethdeannamorrislakes.com. Our website is smugbuds.com, and the podcast is at SmugBuds on Twitter and Instagram.